2: It's uh, the second time it's gone on. They never go home. they never go home.
3: they never go home, those guys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good no. luck.
2: So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever.
1: You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captains Podcast. I'm Owen McDevitt. I've got Ken Early sitting to my left.
2: Hello, Owen. How are you doing? Good, yeah. Uh,
1: r- and Kieran Murphy sitting to my right. Hey there, Owen. How are you? Pretty, uh, pretty good. I'm, I think maybe explaining the seating positions on radio is a rather redundant exercise, though. It's like the famous John Motson line, Ken. Yeah. For those of you watching in black and white, Spurs are in the all yellow strip. Yeah. I I mean, yeah,
4: I mean, I could be in a wardrobe, I mean, who cares, you know, I'm here, I've
1: got a microphone in front of me, let's do this. Nice to hear old Wolfie getting going straight away, though, in the intro music there. Mm. If you can guess how many, or if you can identify how many wolf hells there are today correctly, Correctly. tweet us at Second Captains and you may be in line to win a Second Captains t-shirt. Can't say fairer than that. Something. Maybe in line, Murph, there's a little asterisk beside there, we'll see. Or a compliment slip, something anyway. (laughs) I'm feeling pretty good today, I must say, the sun is shining as we record. We're one week out from the start of the World Cup and the dubs are back this weekend, Murph. Uh, mm. which is great, you know. It's all coming
4: together. I mean there there it is, it's the own McDevitt trifecta. I was thinking the dubs,
1: the sunshine, <laughs> and some
4: football to watch. I was He's a, a simple man, oh no? of,
1: of course I'll probably be ten minutes late, Murph, for the match on Sunday, you know? Oh God. I'm, I'm, <laughs> we're <laughs> we're having a pine around at Gills just... Pub or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh what is, I was thinking about the two things that usually stop a team from defending the rod Island title successfully, which Okay. Almost always happens in Gaelic football. I think one is that they don't deal with the last victory correctly. Yeah. They're, I'm not saying they're out on the piss necessarily, but there's a lot of trophies being shown around schools right up until March of April the following year, generally just not getting their heads right and back down to getting themselves back down to hmm. earth again. The second issue is that there's no injection of new players or just the players had played to such a level the year before that they can't get to that again. I think the second part of that clearly isn't a problem for Dublin. They've got the likes of Cormac Costello who've come in. They have a bunch of players in the team last year, including Mannion and Mm. McCaffrey, these sort of guys who were only playing their first year and actually faded towards the end, so can probably improve again. And I also think they've got the experience of a couple of years ago. This is the second in three years, so they should be okay in terms of dealing with the success of last year, I'm yeah, confident. Murph, is what I'm saying, I, I kind of think that might be the the most important
4: thing that uh, you, if you win your first all All-Ireland obviously there's going to be a, a diminution the the year after. But then, if it, once you've won your second, then it's okay. Let's let's try and make it make this a dynasty. You know, let's let's try and keep this uh, uh, party rolling for as long as you can. And I I don't think I think it's a lot easier for players to get to it after they've won their second all All-Ireland looking for their third, than it is after their first round and then to motivate themselves to go looking for their second. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, this is what we've been saying for a couple of months. It does all kind of seem to be coming together for Dublin. Um, yeah, which is kind of annoying. But hey, Owen, listen, that's fine. You know, gonna, We can handle it.
1: We're going to have Jason Sherlock and Shane Curran looking forward to having the two boys in studio in a little while. Shane's Roscommon are ready to shock the world or at least shock Connacht by beating Mayo this weekend. But interesting pronunciation of the word dynasty there, Murph. Well, I would have go well, like? gone... No, you, you went for Dynasty. I Dynasty or Ken, Dynasty. Would you be a Dynasty man?
2: Um, I'd probably be... It was your
1: favourite TV show when you were a kid, of course. A
2: Dynasty man.
1: Yeah.
4: Was the, pro, was the TV show known as Dynasty or Dynasty. Depends
1: what side of the Atlantic you're on, over
2: maybe, here. Maybe, I maybe time ago, but I'm going to go with Dynasty.
4: Yeah, it might be might be more relevant what side of the Shannon you're on. Mm. Maybe this is <laughs> maybe this is another one of those words. You know what's that great that about podcasts? All
1: this nonsense will be cut out of it. Hopefully, yeah. by the time it actually gets listened to by anybody. Now, the England friendly against Ecuador last night got me very excited about the World Cup. Red cards, injuries, wonder goals, and also a wonder celebration by Michael Arroyo the Ecuadorian player who scored an unbelievable equaliser 25 yards out bang top corner exactly the kind of goal that you want to score if you're playing for your country but his celebration nobody told this guy this is only friendly he seemed to be under the impression that he was in the middle of the World Cup because I'm thinking Tardelli Tostow these wild bug-eyed running celebrations veins pumping all of that was going on which is brilliant yeah I'm kind of thinking
4: he might have been celebrating equalising against England he might also have been celebrating the uh, imminent transfer to Hull City or Birmingham City maybe that he saw in his future after he uh, uh, belted wood into the top court against England. Maybe,
2: I'm m- well, may I mean, maybe he'd, he'd struck a blow against the hated English. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, although it seems implausible, Britain has in fact invaded Ecuador. I was in, going to say, surely the they
4: hadn't invaded Ecuador. It's invaded
2: every country in South America apart from Bolivia and Paraguay. So, Yeah. Ecuador too. Uh, I don't know when, I don't know why, <laughs> <laughs> but it it happens. It uh, must
1: be a bit of a nightmare for the English footballers to have to deal with their colonial past in that way. But d- d- I
2: I really invaded hope- invaded all but twenty two countries <laughs> in the world.
4: Yeah, I really hope someone asked uh, uh, Wayne Rooney before the game started. Obviously, this is a big game for the Ecuadorians. You know, I don't have to tell you, Wade, <laughs> about, about the, your England's colonial past. Teams who play
1: against England are generally quite hyped up for the game. And it's probably not just about the past. It's probably about the Premier League and how visible that is mm. around the world. But the problem from an English point of view is that they don't necessarily have a good enough team to deal with that. So mm. you, you've got a double-edged sword there where the opposition, even in a friendly, are going to be incredibly motivated. But it's not as though they're actually playing against the top players in the world. In fact,
2: probably Well, against that, you've got the fact that the English players, I mean, there's nobody more motivated than them. I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to passion, when it comes to patriotism,
3: Bulldog spare.
2: Do they have an equal in the world of football? Probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably all over the world.
1: We'll but they're certainly in the top one hundred in that in that on that scale at least. We're gonna deal with the England Game and Second Captain's football a little bit later on on this show. We are going to have a look back at the most controversial World Cup of all, I think it could be argued, Argentina 1978. The tournament is remembered in part for the amazing scenes in the ticker tape covered Monumental as the home team celebrated their victory over Holland in the final. But years later, Argentine striker Leopold Luque expressed his belief that the team should never have even played the competition. Uh, The country was under the rule of military dictatorship, which had already begun the process of killing and disappearing political dissidents. Estimates of up to 30,000 people were disappeared in that era. And we're talking about a very short space of time, 1976, the Junta took over, and 1983, they were gone by, so I mean, relatively short in the space of the history of a country, but a lot of damage done. We'll talk to the Argentine journalist, Marcella Mora Irajo about all of that a little bit later on. You mentioned patriotism, Ken, and with mm. that in mind, let's go straight to Pierce Brosnan's shout Shoutouts.
4: That's and
1: right. That's you're so a real Irishman. You
5: get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room, there? I <laughs> got the potatoes and the putine. Huh? And the putine. Oh yeah, there you are. On <laughs> bread, yeah, in uh, County
6: Meath, a place called Navan.
4: Okay, on well, it's uh, Pibesot time, and I'm pleased to report that a major part of this week's Pierce Brosnan Shout out is up close and personal contact with the great man Pierce Brosnan himself. Well. Not up close and personal that anyone's met him or anything, nothing like that But he does feature heavily nonetheless We start with Declan in Melbourne Uh, Hi Murph and the lads, long time listener, second time emailer Murph, I'm a simple man with simple pleasures I don't need flashy cars or a bag load of cash But having emigrated to Melbourne, Australia five years ago with my Aussie wife and kids An old p cup is my obsession And will make living here worth it Uh, So this is it Murph, my shot at the title The opportunity which presents itself once, once in a lifetime I'm watching my team Collingwood, Collingwood versus the West Coast, Coast Eagles on TV, and who should happen to be at the game? Video attached is comical. All the best, and I love the show, guys. So Declan's made a video of himself lying in front of a TV screen. Aussie rules on in the background, holding a piebald sign, and we wait. I
2: don't believe. And we wait. I don't believe it. And
4: we wait. Then all of a sudden, who appears on screen watching the game from a corporate box, other than Pierce, Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan himself? You've gotten yourself. A Declan, congratulations. Uh, Martin Stapleton is listening in Cartagena in uh, Colombia, crying out for a bit of coverage of leash hurling, as we do. Uh, Daryl Hanbury was
1: on a Hawaiian road trip with just us for I'm company. sorry, I'm sorry. We're going to continue with Pierce Brosnan's immigrant shout-outs after the ultimate P. Bezo has just been revealed. Is there any well, point? Well, he was on
4: screen. I mean, he didn't actually meet Pierce Brosnan. I mean, he was just lying watching him on television. I mean, yeah. is it the ultimate... I mean I think the ultimate Is when you Does actually Does anybody meet.
1: actually meet Piers Brosnan I don't no, think he's, he's An unmeetable kind of person I, 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 I
2: don't know You wouldn't expect well, to, to run into him
1: Well David O'Neill Was in a that's
2: restaurant in, I think when you see him On TV at an Aussie Rules match That I mean That's definitely Out of the ordinary
4: Yeah uh, Well David O'Neill He was in a restaurant In Sorrento Which had previously Been graced with the presence oh, Of Pierce the great Brosnan. PB himself Now the restaurant This is disgusting had uh, shamefully printed a photograph of Pierce on their business card. I mean, <laughs> it, that's horrendous, isn't it? I mean, piggybacking on a Hollywood superstar's name for their own sordid benefit. Uh, anyway, on we go. And the Pierce Brosnan Boss t shirt winner this week is uh, Dara Cassidy, who gets the precious merchandise for this email Dear Murphon and Ken, please find attached my P. Bezo offering with none other than Irish rugby legend and friend of the show, Johnny Sexton. As you can see, the photograph was taken in Terminal 2 of Dublin Airport, after the two of us had returned home separately from France for the summer. I'm not sure how well I conveyed the P. concept to him. I hadn't quite realised how ridiculous the phrase Pierce Brosnan's emigrant shout-out sounded until I was mid-explanation, but he was very accommodating. Having spent last year studying in France, I, like Johnny, departed Dublin in late summer, bound for Paris, knowing little of what to expect. After shaky starts to our prospective spells abroad, we both found our feet and our paths once again crossed in the Stade de France where I watched from the stands as Johnny and the rest of the team did the country proud. That's probably where the similarities end, to be honest, although I'm sure he too regularly tuned into the show to combat any pangs of homesickness. I hope this is enough to secure myself all of the pibas glory and everything it entails. So that's from Dara Cassidy. Good man, Dara. Fair play to you. And uh, we now send out a message to all of our listeners around the world week away from the World Cup. And uh, we want to hear from you all watching the tournament around the world and we'll make a big effort to get as many of them read out Especially if you're okay. in Brazil
1: That would be amazing. Yeah, if you're over in Brazil Virginia, July send us over your photographs as well you're well able to do it now lads if you'll only put your mind it and remember if you want to be featured on Pierce Brosnan's Emigrant Shoutouts and live in Ireland well
3: then maybe you shouldn't be living here
1: it is true it is sound advice Shane Curran and Jason Sherlock have joined us in studio to look ahead to big weekend of Championship Football gents thanks very much for being here thanks, thanks very much all. we hardly recognise you Shane without the second captain's robe on <laughs> <laughs> but the, last September on the TV show Jason we asked you a question about the All-Ireland Final between Dublin and Mayo and they're both back out this weekend Uh, you said two words that should be banned in the lead up to the All-Ireland Final are hunger and deserve because every panel will feel they deserve something and every panel is as hungry as the other for success does the same apply at the start of the year do you think is the idea this idea that it's all about hunger is that kind of just nonsense to you?
6: Yeah, I think in all sports, I think hunger, it's it's great in, in hindsight to say, oh, the hungrier team won. I think if you look at the teams that are perceived as hungry, they've come up with a plan or a strategy to outthink or outperform the team that they were playing against and it's very easy then to say oh it was down to hunger but like if you take break and ball okay a team might dominate break and ball but they might have just got their strategy right and if you're the the favourite team obviously that means the opposition are studying you and that's the challenge probably Dublin are going to have this year that people are studying you how we can break them down how we can beat them so it just looks then the perception is that it's more they're more hungry but that doesn't really I don't (laughs) think it equates um, and deserve I think is similar we I know there's so many great teams and great players that deserve success. But the reality is you you don't get in sport. You don't look for for things you deserve. You only have to look at poor Brian's kind of finish there last last Saturday. It wasn't the greatest way for him to come go out in his Leinster career. But um, that's sport. That's the nature of a sport. It's about going out and making your own success.
1: What is it then that prevents teams from defending the All-Ireland title successfully if it's not these clichés of hunger and deserving
6: it? Yeah, well, it's a good place to start because there's so many teams have tried and failed. Um, it, it is very tough. Dublin haven't done it since 76, 77. So straight away to go out and kind of see Dublin as the, the overwhelming favourites to kind of retain a title, it's going to be a big challenge for them. I think if you look at the recent history, uh, most of the, the issues has been injuries because of the demands of winning in All-Ireland now. I think injury has been a big issue. Dublin are fortunate that they probably didn't rely on too many players last year they have had their fair share of injuries Kevin O'Brien is gone, Kirill Kilkenny is gone we haven't seen Dean Rock, we haven't seen Jared Brennan, we haven't seen Dennis Bastic but I suppose that has been balanced by <coughs> the likes of Alan Brogan coming back you obviously have Dublin winning an under 20, 21 title so you'd expect to see some of their guys coming back as well so that's been one of the big challenges and then it's kind of seeing if teams can break them down and I know there's been a lot of talk already about how Dublin could be beaten and, yeah, and that's the beauty about Dublin this year, there are opportunities to go out and beat them. so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. What do you think
1: Shane? Is it more about the tactical side of it and how teams who win need to develop those tactics and develop their personnel rather than the idea that a team just loses its its, uh, dying need to win the All-Ireland once they've won it?
3: I'll go back to Jason's, uh, you know, and his view is probably right. You know, it doesn't boil down to the cliched hunger or desire or anything like that. But what it does boil down is to your physical and mental alertness and preparedness. And I really don't think there's too many teams in the country that can compete with Dublin that, in that field. Um, probably the two managers out there that can compete and, and set their team up tactically to compete with Dublin are Jim McGuinness and uh, Mickey Hart. Um James Horden has the team, but has he got the capability from a managerial point of view to compete with Dublin? I don't think he has. Um, So I think the Championship is going to boil down to Dublin at the top. Uh, if goal come out unscathed out of Donegal, out of out of Ulster without having uh, too many scarves in them or too many battles uh, they could possibly put it up to dublin on a one one a one to one and I think that's the only team they can do it maybe Tyrone but i have Tyrone got the personnel i don't think so
1: it's interesting that you don't think James Horn necessarily has it because they beat Dublin two years ago and last year within a point or two of being All-Ireland champions, it seems like Horne's done a pretty
3: good job. I would say, from the outside looking in, he's done a pretty good job. But when it has come down to the final, the final day... Um, he's messed up on two occasions, and particularly the All-Ireland against Donegal the first day. Uh, tactically, he got it wrong. And last year against Dublin, I think he went in with a preconceived notion, uh, preconceived ideas about how to set his team up, what personnel he was going to change, and he didn't reflect in the game. And when it didn't reflect in the game, he didn't know what to do. Now, if you look at uh, Jim McGuinness back in 2011 against Dublin and the, the, the battlefield they had against Dublin that day, I think it ended up with eight points to six or something. He learned... Really, a lot from that particular game, in that he, he knew that um, for Dunie to win the All Ireland, he had to keep McFadden and Murphy inside as his two two chief scorers. Uh, he played them in a withdrawn role mostly in two eleven he went back to the drawing board and he learned from that and his management team learned from that and I think if you look at Mio in totality the um, James Allen was with them last year he hasn't been replaced either um, which is difficult Donny Buckley has come in as a selector but Donny was there last year so they've not really added another experienced voice to their management team and generally when a twin, when Gaelic <laughs> football boils down to inches uh, at final levels and the last three or four finals have boiled down to that um, it does generally, look, the cutest manager, the guy that has got got the intellect to do the right thing with the players that he has at his disposal, uh, generally comes out on top. And Jim Gavin, I'm, I'm not too sure, um, and I've spoken about this recently, I think Jim Gavin is a very good manager. Uh, I think Jim McGuinness could manage Dublin the same way Jim Gavin is managing them, but I'm not too sure could Jim Gavin manage Donegal the way Jim McGuinness is managing them
6: and I don't think he'd want to though, no anywhere. probably he
3: wouldn't <laughs> no he wouldn't and, and but that's the challenges that the managers have um, and I think McGuinness has shown himself to be tactically aware um, of how the game has to be played with the personnel that he has at his disposal against the likes of Dublin, I think we've seen in the recent under-21 final, you can't go toe-to-toe with Dublin with the quality of players that have their mental preparation and their physical preparation is professional. And there's no way that any other county can compete with that. Your, and your
4: criticism of James Horan might sound you know, it, it might sound harsh, but the fact is that a lot of Mayo people are actually saying the same thing as well, Shane, which is kind of worrying coming into like, the start of the championship for, for them this weekend.
3: Well, I'm not aware of what my old people are saying, but I think from the outside looking in, um, there was huge mistakes made in the final last year. There was an opportunity to beat Dublin. Now, I'd have to say it, to be fair, apart from Robert Henley, who kept the scoreline to a point, Dublin deserved to win that game by 9, 10 points. They were by far the better team. But James just didn't show the aptitude that I think is required as a manager to get that team over the line. They're probably on a skill level um, as well well-balanced as any team to compete with Dublin. But I don't think tactically that they're, they're, they're able to cope when it Jay's comes down
6: to it Yeah just to reinforce that point if you look at the, the National League there when Dublin played Mayo I think for 20 minutes Mayo went toe to toe and they dominated Dublin Dublin had a man sent off Stephen Cluxton so it was an unfamiliar situation for Mayo Dublin came came very strong at the end a lot of criticism for Mayo on the night I just felt sometimes when a situation happens you probably sometimes you haven't accounted for it but then you go forward two weeks they played against Derry the, Derry had a man sent off and there won that game now that was a big red flag in my mind that you can understand one or you can justify being in a situation and not being able to finish it out once but that happened two weeks later it just kind of put a, a signal in my head well maybe tactically they're not investing enough In
1: defence of James Horan though if we're comparing playing panels as you were there Shane is it arguable that Dublin just have more depth so Jim Gavin has a bit more leeway and he could actually make a mistake or two but he still has the players to bring off the bench that maybe Horan doesn't have
6: well, that's, that's again, I suppose that's the philosophy or the nature that Jim Gavin has brought it. He's made sure that everyone that's on that panel feels like they're a part of it and they're ready to play a role. Yeah, it's a
1: different and, sort of challenge. Yeah, right?
6: you know, that's, that's part. I fair, it's a fair point that at the moment Dublin have a lot of talent. But in saying that, from a Mayo point of view, like the biggest question and the reality is that their barometer is so high, we will only judge Mayo this year on the success and failure of the last 20 minutes potentially of an All-Ireland final whether they execute the way they should to win the game. Now, for most teams, that's a high barometer, you know, but that's where Mayo are in, in everyone's minds and they have the potential to win in All-Ireland. But I suppose the, the point me and Shane are, are kind of suggesting is maybe tactically they aren't at the level yet and it'll be interesting to see if anything kind of changes significantly in the way they play this year.
1: In his press briefing this week, Jim Gavin said it was slightly contradictory in one sense. Talking about team selection, Shane, he said that on the one hand, the policy we have is a player gets into position, he holds that jersey, that's his jersey and other people have to come and match their energy levels and 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 that player's desire. But on the other, he said that if a player goes well in training, when they've come back from their club duties, we'll give them a shot and give them a place in the team. So it's maybe hard to get a read sometimes on exactly how Jim Gavin is thinking about these things. But where would you stand on that? The successful club player who is as committed as the guys have already been in there, should they be given the shot? Or do you give it to the guy who, just by dint of circumstance, has been there in the league and has played well?
3: Well, I don't think... I think Jim Gavin is, you know, he's just got such a pool of talent there. You know, he can replace one player with the other. And... and, any of them is going to be as good as the other. And you know, it's an enviable position to be in. And you can look and you can dress it up like he's played one guy's going well in training, one guy's gone well in the league. One guy's doing brilliant at his club for his club. Um but it doesn't really matter because they've all got the same the same skill sets. I mean he can replace he can replace probably his top five forwards with five as good if they're all fit. Um, not too many counties can do that, and as we all know, it's forwards that wins games. Um, I think Stephen, obviously in goal, you know, offers them an awful lot as well. And I think the likes of Dara, Dara Macaulay wouldn't be half the player without a Tuxton kicking the ball out to him. And he makes the game look very easy, and he, he brings players into the game. So. He, Without you know, without Steven the struggle. Um they've struggled in a lot of games without him. And it just goes to show you how important a goalkeeper is to, to a to a team like Dublin. But the, the one thing I like about Jim Gavin and Dublin is their philosophy about playing the game. They play the game in the correct way. They play. They try to play the game moving forward. They're a very good kick-passing team. They move the ball through the hand very well, and they're very, very skillful. Um, and I don't think players get enough of credit nowadays as well for the actual skills that have been brought to Gaelic football vis-a-vis twenty-five years ago or thirty years ago. And you can look at maybe the likes of of Donegal in a, in a different context, bring different skill sets to it. Mayo as well. Uh, and Too much hand teams. passing, though. Shane, I don't, I don't passing, agree with that. Well, I mean, you know, the, the people say. that are criticising the hand passing game are the people that invented it you know you listen to Spillane and few of these guys and sure they're the guys that, that, that threw it in and it's, it's a rule you've got to you've got to play within those rules and um, I, think, well, I think Dublin kicked the ball very well they passed the ball very well uh, Duny Gaul probably and, and Tyrone have a shorter game but that's probably because of the players they have
1: just to go back to that issue of who a manager should pick or what the, what the wisest <laughs> course of action is there when their club has gone well it is an enviable position but it's still a tricky decision to make what would you do Would you, a guy like Dean Rock should he be straight back in the team
6: yeah, well, I, I I agree with Shane saying that there there's a lot of talent and you can replace them, but the challenge then is to be able to replace guys that are going to improve the performance, and that comes down and like on, we've been in championship panels where you know you kind of know after the first couple of games if you're going to get minutes or not, and then if you don't get minutes, you kind of maybe the couple of points you might have kind of when you can you might have or you right. m- you you just might lose focus, you might kind of more be focused on the club stuff and that, so there is a challenge in keeping. 30 guys motivated and focused on on playing so that is something I think Jim Gavin has done very well because I remember when Bernard Brogan was being taken off in games going back a few years ago people thought like that was a big uh, challenge for Dublin, Bernard wouldn't be able to take it, Dublin might suffer and now the philosophy is you go as hard as you can for as long as you can and then you come out and it's straightforward enough so you can understand Jim saying that guys if they're going well they're going to get an opportunity because that's part as a manager you have to motivate and keep your guys focused and engaged and in fairness I think that's what Jim is doing. Fairness, Jason and you hit the nail on the head. He's really motivated his total squad, but there is a necessity in the modern game to also
3: do that because it's now a 21-man game. Probably twenty seven man game. You need twenty seven, twenty eight guys chomping at the bit to force those twenty one. As Jason says, you know whether you're going to get minutes or not. But back maybe in our day when we started out, there was probably eighteen or nineteen at the at the core of it. Now you got to have twenty six or twenty seven. You know, and Jim's Jim's ability to be able to bring that forward, uh, I think, really has been his biggest challenge, and it's been a challenge that he's really jumped and and uh, and learned very well from. But Brogan last year was taken off in a lot, a lot of games. And, you know, he's a big ego, he's, you know, he's a great player and uh, you got to keep and manage that. And that is the big challenge um, that, that Jim has had and he's passed that challenge. Yeah, it seems to be doing
1: great. Now, I don't know how many of the frailties that Dublin might have will be tested by Leash. Is the plight of that county, maybe since they won Leinster, was well, 10, 11 years ago now, maybe indicative of the issues in the province? It's been left really up to Kildare Meath to a certain extent sometimes Wexford to trouble Dublin but the, the likes of Leash who did seem to have this basis have fallen away for whatever reason and maybe that's part of the problem
6: yeah, like going back to when Leash won their a title, like there was a lot of talk about them that they could sustain it. We've all seen counties that have won a, a provincial title on a one-off and then kind of gone gone away. But Leash seemed to have a lot of talent, particularly at underage. And um, I suppose it's unfortunate that we haven't seen them competing at a provincial level over the last number of years. Um, they had, the, the last few years, they've had Justin McNulty. He came with a different philosophy, probably alien to what Leash had kind of done in the past. He highlighted the kind of physical need of the games. He he was very structurally they were very defensive orientated and they caused Dublin trouble. You go back to 2012 in the All-Ireland quarter final, and um, they put it up to Dublin that day. I think of Flaherty coming in he's probably changed what, what they're doing. It's probably symptomatic about how the game is going now. There was a lot of high scoring in the, the league uh, games. They had 21 points I think against Wicklow in the Championship. So it'll be interesting to see how they arrive into Crow Park on, on Sunday. I think there's a couple of teams on Sunday they have a challenge. Do they go out and try and play their own game, <laughs> potentially kind of losing their season because of it if they get if they get a serious beaten, or is it a case of damage limitation? Surely you've got to play your game? own
1: game though, because realistically if your leash are going into it, you're not going to beat Dublin. You're almost certainly not going to beat Dublin. So why not stick to the the blueprint, stick to what you've trained at, and at least you'll see then what the chinks in that are and then you can possibly iron those out for the next game.
3: The problem is that. Um, in the modern era, not only are the players under pressure, but the management teams are under pressure, and they're under pressure also to preserve their own their own reputations. So for most of Florida um, while he may uh, like to go out for an expansive game against Dublin he's no fool he's going to know that if he does it's probably going to result in a 23, 24 maybe even a 25 point beating or whenever Dublin take the gas off after 13 or 14 points so then he's got a challenge to say well okay will we set the team up a little bit different try and remain competitive for 45, 50 minutes and take take what's probably going to be an arrow and close win and say okay can we build from that so that is the challenge that teams have now against Dublin and over the last three or four of the teams Around the country have against Dublin and other teams as well, other than Leash. Is do you do you park the bus? Roscommon are going to have a similar issue with Mayo and Hyde Park Sunday. Do you park the bus? Do you try to remain competitive? Do you give the players a platform to for, for, for confidence going forward? Or do you take a big, big chance and take a heavy ship and knock the players' confidence? But in? do you not
1: want the players to be confident in your philosophy in the game? So if I'm playing for Leash and I see Tommaso Flaherty likes to play open football, this is what he believes can be successful. But look, now he parks it in the biggest game that we're going to have because he thinks we're not good enough to carry it out and stay in any way competitive. Could that almost knock the confidence of the players being told you have to play defensively and abandon what we've worked at all year?
3: Well, certainly it does and um, there's no doubt about that and, and then what happens then is the players lose confidence in the manager eventually anyhow yeah. so it's, 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 you know, it's like the hamster going around on the wheel when he gets sick of it he has to go back the other way but it's, it's, it's very very difficult um, it's a very difficult situation that teams like that find themselves in you're trying to on one hand be competitive you're also trying to play the game the right way but if you look at last year Ruscommon shipped a twenty-point defeat to Mayo down in down in Castlebar, and the criticism that came out of that for for John Evans was was quite substantial. So you go and you play play Tyrone in the hide and you set your game up to be defensive, to remain competitive, and he still takes criticism because the team ultimately didn't win, but played played a game alien to to how Roscommon want to play. So it's. It's difficult. It's it's a difficult situation for the manager to be in. Jason, what way would you go there?
6: Yeah, I just feel as a manager, you don't want your season to end this weekend, you know. And wh- what I mean by that is, I know there's a back door, but you don't want a defeat that is so bad. It's you're picking up the pieces for a week or ten days. You're trying to get back the players' confidence. You're trying. You're taking on board what the media and supporters are saying. And I think that's what the modern day manager looks at. He, he's like, there's a such thing as a, a good defeat nowadays. And I know you might see like playing. The All Ireland Champions or the All Ireland Runners Up as the biggest game. It's probably not the biggest game. The biggest game is going to be in two weeks' time in the qualifiers. They'd be hoping for a home draw where they can kind of get a win. And once you get the win, you get the momentum going again. So, as much as yeah, it's great to be leashed for playing Dublin. I'd imagine that O'Flaherty's smart enough that he he is his eye on the bigger picture.
1: I say go out, all guns blazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind, kind of easy for you to say that. The over after twenty minutes. Exactly. Yeah, Shane, you seem uh, just uh, alluding to a couple of things you've said. Earlier, you don't seem too confident about Roscommon because they're a young team on the up they've nothing to lose there seems to be confidence in the county Kevin McStay I see in the Independent this week says that no other county in Connacht has the forwards of the quality that Roscommon have surely all the ingredients are
3: there for a shock. Kevin is right uh, in one one sense um, but let me explain I think you, it's very very difficult, if you to draw an analogy with the English Premiership, would you expect um, Preston North End to come along and, and, and beat Arsenal in FA Cup final, or nine times out of ten it doesn't happen, so you may get a day when it can um, we've a lot of things going right for us in Roscommon absolutely, and we've a lot of things to be proud of but there's also a lot of work to be done and we're playing off a very narrow base Um, You've got to remember, Roscommon are playing for the last eight years now at Division 3 level so you're not exactly you know competing at the highest level you're making mistakes at the lowest level all the time so you're not the players aren't learning as fast and in general it's it's a lot of the same core players certainly for the last six years so we're at Division 2 level now and we've had a relatively good league but you've got to bear you've got to really draw I suppose you know conclusions from that league that you're playing teams that really good club teams now would beat the likes of Sligo they would beat Offaly they would beat Fermanagh as we've seen Antrim beat them um, Limerick were very, very poor and Wexford were very, very poor C- Cavan and Roscommon were without doubt the two best sides in it Roscommon were the best team in it because they had the best forwards in Division 3 um, some very, very good players Giambert, Murtha Murta, uh Shine, our own Kilbride um, and Cahill Craig going very well uh, at that level but the challenge is can you bring it to a team That's competing at Division 1 level now for the last... I think we all haven't been out of Division 1 in 12, 13 years. That's a long time. They're a battle-hardened side. Uh, They're a strong side. They're a well-drilled side. They're a very physical side. And, you know, whether we like it or not in Roscommon, they're a good team. They're in the top three in the country consistently now for the last four or five years. Okay, they haven't got over the line, but that doesn't take from the fact that they're a right right good so side.
1: Would you accept what <coughs> Jason describes as a good defeat for oh, us? Oh,
3: absolutely. And, and I've had, a, and Jason is 110% right. Um, the challenge, while certain people in Roscommon are, are maybe talking the team's chances, chances up a little bit too much, the reality is um, football people understand that. It's going to be very, very difficult for us, to compete with them Sunday, if they set the, their team up the proper way, the right way, with the right personnel. Yes, it's possible to be to be uh, competitive and keep the game competitive, um, for quite a, quite a while. Is it possible for us, to win? Yes, it is. That that one out of a hundred opportunity may present itself, um. But the reality is that we're a bit off, and our squad isn't just strong enough to compete with Mayo. As I see it at the moment, um, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know. We've got good players, yes, but um, I think Mio are just the better players, and that's yeah, the reality.
4: There was quite a bit of talk about people basically trying to construct an argument as to why Galway would beat Mio last year in Pier Stadium. And Horan and the Mayo players actually seemed to be a little put out by it that, oh, you know, the... It, looking back through history, there's only a kick of a ball between Galway and Mayo and Galway are... you know oh, the,
1: the forum book goes out the window yeah, when it comes to local that, rivalries. All and that sort of things.
4: talk and Mayo seemed really annoyed by it and there is a chance that maybe they might be listening to the all of the chat around Roscommon and again, tr- people trying to construct an argument as to why Roscommon might win this game and... Be pretty annoyed about it, you know. It's kind of an interesting thing that that he was able to do last year to be able to actually turn that against it, uh, turn that into Mayo's favour. That idea that, oh, you know, history tells us X, Y, or Z. History doesn't tell you anything. If Mayo have better players, they should go out and beat these teams by ten or twelve points, which is what they did. What they did last year. Yeah, and that'll
6: be it'll be interesting as well because like there was a lot of criticism to Mayo because they had it too easy last year. So in a way, uh, if James Horman was waking up on Monday morning, what would be an ideal result? He would probably like it to be within four or five points with 20 minutes to go, the Roscommon crowd kind of right behind the team and Mayo finishing out the game well. Do you buy
1: into that criticism? Uh, well, it's not criticism of Mayo, but the analysis that ultimately they suffered from not having competitive enough
6: games I, I don't think internally I think externally and the reality with Mayo like there's a lot of external factors in terms of what the supporters demand what the media want like we went into the All-Ireland final last year and it was literally 50-50 in terms of people who thought Mayo would win and that's the level of expectation that's there now it didn't help them by blitzing uh, Galway by hammering Donegal getting to an All-Ireland final so in a way if they if they struggled against Roscommon at the weekend if Galway put up a good performance in a provincial final would that be the worst in the world for, for Mayo I don't think it would I think it would actually it would help them and kind of rein in the, the, the level of expectation that uh, is out there
1: Okay well lads we're look forward to hopefully not too many teams parking the bus on a decent weekend of football Shane Curran Jason Sherlock brilliant stuff thanks to you both
3: Thank you very much gentlemen Shane, Shane, Shane. Shane Curran
1: with the kick
3: out the 42 year old goalkeeper Turn it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal.
6: What a day for us coming. Automotive is lame and you know it now. When the real deal gonna hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Pam. 1944 is the last time
3: senior take like him out of here. And a whoa wah, wah, be the last one. Pam.
1: What a day for us coming. We didn't get a chance to mention Gavin Duffy there, Murph. There was so much other great stuff that the lads were talking about. I had initially intended to ask them what they thought about Duffy's chances for the season, given that the reports are that he's out of the panel this weekend. Now, he's come back from Connacht, having not played Gale football since, uh, doing very well at minor level, but seems to have been a pet project of James Horan, who's spoken very enthusiastically about his development, but this game seems to have come a little bit early. Yeah,
4: well, the indication are that he hasn't made the subs bench, and I mean, the subs bench is a immovable feast is the best of times during the GAA Championship. So who knows, he may yet be uh, sprung from the bench wearing number 28 or 29 or whatever. Um, but yeah, like as the lads were saying there, maybe Mayo aren't going to have a serious Championship game between now and the start of the start of August. Maybe it's no harm to keep him in reserve for this game, maybe even for the Connacht final. Well, I would have
1: thought though if you are developing a guy like that, the best, easy, the, the steepest learning curve would be to throw him into a game even if it was only for 20 minutes. Now maybe... You, he could come up very short there and that might be good for his confidence but you've got to get the guy playing if you want to develop him for the rest of the season.
4: Yeah, it was interesting hearing uh, James Warren talking about the specific challenges, the stuff that that Gavin Duffy found difficult and the hand pass was the big thing and obviously the hand pass, as we were talking about with the lads as well, I mean the hand pass is obviously a huge part of the game now and it's one part of the skill set that he seems to have lost um, between being a uh, Mayo minor in 1999, playing a bit of club, I think in 2000, and then the 14 years since, so you're looking at potential places where you could play him. And full forward is a uh, an area where may, maybe Mayo are looking to strengthen. Um, and you'd have to do a lot of hand passing there if if you're as you would presume Duffy is into play there with his back to goal, effectively, into to sort of spray passes around from uh, close to goal. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. We, I myself would love to see him playing on on Sunday, even if it was only for twenty minutes, just to see how far it's gone and maybe get an indication of
1: of uh, how far he could he could actually progress between now and September. There are some great hurling games on this weekend too, including the debut of Sky Sports Kilkenny against Offaly. In that one, I saw Brian Whelan, who's the Offaly manager these days, speaking to Eoin Reardon in the Irish Times today and expressing. I think you would call it a sense of duty towards Offaly hurling. That's why he's taken over. Nobody is in any sort of uh, under any illusions that Offaly are going to be any sort of powerhouse anytime soon. So the argument is that maybe the most legendary player they've ever had could probably leave it for a brighter time. But he feels that he has this duty. And we saw this at first time. We certainly saw the love that he has of Burr hurling a few years back. Remember we did a show there. Yeah, I remember as well. My big memory tonight was that I made a, a small gag before just trying to Get the crowd warmed oh, up. Oh, I remember this. You this
4: wa- oh, like I like it. remember. Ton of bricks. No, Owen, you, you tell it.
1: No, if you remember it, you remember
4: it. Basically, Owen uh, started the show by saying something along, along the lines of It's an honour to be here uh, 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 broadcasting a show
1: from the second greatest. No, no. What I said was. And it was off air. Uh, I wasted my best material off-air. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you should really do. I said, uh, we decided we wanted to come and do a show from the oh, greatest yeah, okay. hurling club of all time. But the car broke down on the way to Portumna. Oh. So here we are. Burn, yeah, right? Yeah. I got, I ra- I I mean, got I roundly booed funny. for that. You I did thought, get booed, I thought, that's yeah. funny. You get a bit of a joke, you know, you, you take on the crowd. <laughs> uh, this is in Brian Whelan's bar. Yeah, About 11pm, midnight, half past midnight, I'm still getting these what I can only describe as dirty looks from Brian Whelan and a couple of snide comments from the likes of Johnny Pilkington and Dahi Regan these people not happy that I made yeah. this gag so they love burr hurling I'm sure that Brian Whelan loves up hurling just as much and will do well, just fine well nearly as much coming up in Second Captain's Football
3: that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that but really well, you can laugh I'm a, cool. I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me you well, don't know what you're talking about. What well, did you want? I'd like to, to stay alive for oh, six minutes. I'd, I'd say it to you, guys. I'll say it to you now. Mean, I'm down to and we'll see them, will with What you're doing down here? You're showing me, man.
2: <laughs> so it turns out um, that England are the most exciting team going to the World Cup. They're a team full of uh, young players, most of whom admittedly are, are going to be left to, to rot in the obscurity of the bench play. Roy Hodgson Um, really not much idea of what kind of a game plan uh, they're supposed to be bringing out there and uh, the potential to get sent off at any moment (laughs) Uh, so it makes for an explosive uh, cocktail we're going to talk a little bit about that we're going to talk also about Diego Costa who's moving to Chelsea now and how he fits into the Spain team who our correspondent believes are going to win the World Cup again
1: so do I you I, think that too? And I don't know who this correspondent is yet, Ken. I'm excited about talking you. to this person and agreeing with them wholeheartedly yeah, and like, fawning over them for their opinion, <laughs> which I share.
2: They're, they're going to do it. So I'll, uh, I suppose I'll, it'll be left to me to... Um,
1: Provide some journalistic counterbalance.
2: As though I don't think they're going to win it again, which I don't.
1: Marcela Mora-Yoraco is an Argentine journalist who we have spoken previously to about the Diego Maradona autobiography. Today, we're joined by Marcela from Buenos Aires to talk about one of the darkest periods in her country's history from 1976 to 1983 when Argentina was ruled by a, a brutal military dictatorship, crushed opposition by taking people from their homes, taking them who knows where, but up to 30,000 people were never seen again. And this is still the cause of huge grief to their families, obviously, to this day. In the midst of this period, Argentina hosted and won the 1978 World Cup, which gave people a brief moment of joy, but it also served to deflect attention from what was actually going on there. Delighted to be joined by Marcela. Now, Marcela, uh, was when when it's look when people look back at this tournament now and that year 1978 is it seen as a footballing triumph or is the success too closely associated with the military dictatorship
5: well i think there's a little bit of, of both i mean it's definitely a, a a victory that has a certain stigma to it a stain if you like the 1986 world cup is regarded as a much Uh, more joyful event for some reason. And certainly for the players, I think, for the 1978 World Cup players, there's been quite a lot of uh, controversy to live down. Having said that, um, it's important to note that it was an amazing moment within a very difficult climate in Argentina. The the military dictatorship that was uh, leading the country had been in power uh, sorry, had not been in power when the World Cup was uh, given to Argentina. So they took over the government, and the World Cup was already a given. And then they decided to use that, as any government I think would, to the you know to to maximize the popular frenzy and and get the people uh, very engaged. They don't call it the opium of the masses for yeah. nothing, but um, but it was definitely. You know, before before the World Cup, there were the kind of public gatherings were banned. Uh, people weren't allowed to kind of go out on the streets. They were allowed, but they were scared. There were curfews. You couldn't gather in groups of more than three or four people. And and when the World Cup started, you could. And that was uh, something that we all felt. I mean, I was only a kid, but I remember it quite clearly. We all felt it very. You know, it was it was a very tangible effect. Uh, and aside from that, I think, well, there's a there's an interesting uh, theory to kind of look at, which is Minotti, the manager in 1978. He he was known for being quite left wing, anti anti the military government, in as much as one could publicly say so. Uh, and he, so he was he was a man with political ideals and he had made them public. He wasn't one of those football men who go, oh, it's got nothing to do with me. But he uh, requested that he be left to work alone in peace and undisturbed. And so there was no meddling with what he did. He just took the players for months, kind of gathered them in, in the concentracion, uh, which is the Argentinian word for, and well, indeed Italian, for you know, for the gathering of the players and the focusing on the game and so on. And as a result, I was able to display a very pure football that was very much in line with his beliefs and his theories as a football philosopher. You know, a lot of passing, a lot of um, of, of forward attacking. And uh, in 1986, when Bilardo took over and, and by now there was a, d- a democracy in Argentina, the government had been elected by the people. There was this kind of frenzy of everybody's allowed to have an opinion, and we're not going to agree, and, you know, there were politicians, and the press, and everyone meddling. And 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 the football that Bilardo displayed also because of his personality, I suppose, but he's a very rigid man, and he likes tactics, and he kind of, he sees football as a, you know, a desperate battle for control over territory. The football that was played in '86 is much more restricted and repressed in a way. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people see this. I mean, there were, obviously there was Maradona, who is you know the most beautiful and and free expresser of of the football thoughts and so on. But I think a lot of people see the 1978 World Cup as a football. Uh, Memory as a very, very lovely one. Yeah, it's interesting. The fact that the government was here and it was awful is awful, but also, again, the World Cup give us a little bit of respite and a break from
1: that It sounds like the government were able to swallow some of their own ideals when it came to actually how the team played, and maybe they saw that it's best just to let the manager get on with things but you talked you touched on the climate of fear in the country at the time, Marcella, and you said you're only a kid yourself, but the, the brutal tactics that we hear about the process of disappearing political dissidents was this stuff all well underway in the in those couple of years before the World Cup started.
5: Well, this is something that we weren't entirely aware of at the time. Um, and it's only uh, with hindsight and as, as the years have passed that the, the details have uh, come to light. I mean, essentially, what was going on, Argentina has a history of political turmoil, of violence, you know, oppositions and uh, people who are dissatisfied with something often take to organise violence. There have been military governments many times. This wasn't the first. Um, The actual atrocities that were committed in Argentina by the particular junta in the 70s came to light much, much later. And in fact, came to light because many survived and spoke and because when the first democratic government took over in the early 80s, it was an unprecedented trial against the military so they were you know they were held to account and 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 testimony of survivors and of people and just to backtrack a minute the other interesting thing happened a lot of the uh, so what happens is there are people suspected of being terrorists or of being organizing armed uh, attacks against the establishment, and they are detained without trial in clandestine cells, perhaps tortured for information, and often killed, we heard much later, you know, thrown from planes with stones around their ankles and things. And and these people are disappeared because nobody knows where they are. There isn't a kind of log of arrests and a time and a cell number where they're kept. So these, these are the disappeared. Yeah. The mothers of these people, the mothers of... A lot of them were very young activists. Some were school kids that were actually campaigning for a kind of reduction in the bus fare to get to school. I mean, there's, you know, really, really sordid and gory level of... Now, the mothers organized themselves and they would start, they marched every Thursday at the government house. They went to see the priests, the church, everyone they could think of because they wanted to find their children. Now, no one really here knew much about the details office. It certainly, it wasn't in the press. Nobody paid much attention to the mothers that were marching around on Thursday outside the government house. When Holland got to the final of the 1978 World Cup, there were an enormous amount of Dutch journalists in the country who started going around the city and covering, you know, doing stories because they were here and they had to wait for the final. And they were the first to broadcast the mother's plight outside Argentina. So I guess, out of stretch, one could say, you know, the, the mothers is a movement. They, now they're a political movement. They have a university. They have a radio, you know, mothers. It's, it's an, a force in this country.
1: OK, so the World Cup had a direct positive effect on the plight of the mothers of the movement and perhaps gave them a voice outside Argentina for the first time, so as you, as you explain here. But could you maybe outline the effect that the World Cup had or maybe the experience the World Cup uh, provided for prisoners or the tortured at that time? Did it have any effect on those people?
5: There is a, a very famous um, case of a, a young woman who was known as the Vicky. That was her kind of combat name, Graciela Daleo. And she was held in a clandestine center detention center which was at, held at the military, <clears throat> sorry at the military school at the ESMA, right next door to the River Plate Stadium where the matches were being played in the final and she went uh, she survived and, and became a very outspoken advocate of human rights and so on and she uh, says they could hear the gods in their cells and also she was very against the World Cup and against football, um, she says even among her uh, you know, her her kindred spirit activists, she was accused of not understanding football because she was a woman and so she could hear some of her colleagues discussing lineups and goals with the very men that tortured them, so there was this extraordinary kind of Excessive Stockholm effect, or you, you know, the, the, the prisoners, the detainees, the tortured would uh, suspend that, as would the, the men who tortured them to kind of bond over a particular formation. Now, when Graciela, uh, when Argentina won the World Cup, Graciela and a group of other prisoners. Uh, quote, unquote, were taken out by the military to celebrate in the streets and driven around in a car. And she stood out of the kind of the slide roof of the car to watch the people and the crowds. And it must have been incredibly surreal because she'd been locked up in this awful place. And she said to me years later, if I was to shout now, help me, I'm tortured, I've I'm disappeared, I'm a victim, who would hear me? And we kind of both concluded that nobody would, because I happened to be on a similar, on the same stretch of road as she was, and I remember very clearly, just singing and shouting and you know throwing ticker tape, and it was an enormous party. And in fact, without having an extreme example such as hers, if someone was to shout, "Help me! My wallet's been nicked," or you know, "Help me! Someone's poked me in an unpleasant manner," mm-hmm. nobody would hear. And I think that's a kind of frenzy. Of mass celebration and euphoria that football can provoke, which which does actually drown out all other voices and all other sounds. And it happened here in 1978, in in, in a non metaphorical way. It was very literal. You know, after Graciela was taken to celebrate, have dinner with her, uh, the people who were holding her captive and tortured her, they were taken back to their cell, and the whole process of torturing. Prison has continued and similarly for all society, you know, everything goes back to normal. So it's a moment. It's about instance.
2: You could see that the the joy that the tournament brought was real. I mean, maybe it's the most visually spectacular World Cup of all. I mean, with the ticker tape sort of flowing down uh, from the upper tiers of the stands. But when you look back on it, I mean, Leopold Luque, one of the key players in the Argentine team, um, is quoted as saying, in hindsight, we should never have played that World Cup. I strongly believe that. Uh, I know that you were saying, Marcelo, that people didn't necessarily know the extent of what was happening, but I'm sure that people did have some idea. I mean, it wasn't as though um, boycotts in in football in in the 1970s in Latin America were unknown. Certainly the Soviet Union had refused to play uh, against Chile because of what had happened with uh, the Pinochet revolution there. Um, Do you think, looking back, that the teams that participated, not just the Argentine team, but the, the... foreign teams as well, were morally culpable for participating in something which should have been boycotted.
5: Well, I think it's, you know, uh, discuss, you know, South Africa boycotted sport and then, uh, achieved total unification through sport. Um, the Russian example is interesting because the Pinochet took over, um, and Allende was thrown out because Aliende was a socialist. And this was after all a war against communism. So I'm not surprised the Russians didn't want to play. Um, they were the enemy, you know, or, or vice versa. Uh, China, you know, if you talk to the athletes, they like to participate. And I think, um, and uh, now, because it's been enough, long enough, there is a, a I, I mean, now a lot Argentina is governed by the generation that were the political activists back then. They are the government. They are the establishment. And there is an interesting intellectual current of thinking that says, that is revisionist. Even Graciela D'Aleo, for example, the last time I tried to approach her to do some documentary she said, look, I can't continue to be a football anecdote for European audiences. I will only go and talk and be interviewed if I'm allowed enough time to explain the entire context and why it is that we decided to take up arms. So they were, you know, there was violence on both sides. The atrocities committed by the military, like the atrocities that appear to be be, being committed in Guantanamo, are unacceptable and there's no excuse. Equally, if you live in a day-to-day life where you maybe go to school and you get there and there's been a bomb that's blown the place up or your neighbor's daughter has been kidnapped because he's, president of a company or, you know, the bus just blows up in front of your eyes, then you want to have a little bit of football for a while at some point. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing any of it, and I think, you know, um, certainly some of these issues are are not uh, peculiar to Argentina, to Chile, you know. when you get it, when you get the, the armed forces manage to justify to the populace at large that the war they are fighting is legitimate, then you have a problem. Now, whether all other activities should be boycotted because you don't agree with that, I think is open to discussion. Personally, I wouldn't boycott a sporting event, but I would try to use it in a way that means ec- more awareness is generated and that's very difficult to do because really other than awareness for the kind of brands that are being lashed up around the Mm -hmm. stadium it's very very difficult to generate awareness for anything. I don't know that if the World Cup had been boycotted um, anything would have been any different.
1: Marcella, uh, in terms of where we're at now. Some of those responsible for uh, and those involved in that military dictatorship have been held to account. The mothers have uh, continued to protest certainly up until recent years. There's still so much anguish and hurt largely because th- th- these people just don't know where their family members are. The stats we hear that maybe only as few as 600 people have been found and identified out of the 20 to 30,000 people who have been uh, disappeared, where in 2014 are we at there? Is there anything more that can be done? Or at this stage, are are the families of those people happy that the the present government, as you say, who were some of the people who were uh, the protesters at the time, have done enough at this stage?
5: The, the problem I mean, the, the, there's a very interesting man called Hector Lace who's living in Brazil now he's quite old and and he's not very well, but he's written a couple of very, very provocative books because he is uh, he's doing a mere culpa. he's saying, look we we decided to become terrorists. We took up arms in the name of a political struggle, and unless we do some revisionism, then the history of violence would just go on and on with you know us and them. Um, that's the, from the point of view of the, uh, I'm a pacifist, so I don't know what more can be done. I think everyone who ever fought with a gun for anything has to say, look, I made a mistake and I'm not going to do this again and there should be no guns circulating. In terms of recovering the children of the disappeared and now the grandchildren, because there's a whole generation that were born in captivity, that were adopted illegally. That's a terrible, terrible wound that will never heal. And you get both instances of, uh, of uh, you know, kids who don't want to know. Somebody Suddenly somebody comes and says, look, we're going to have to do some DNA tests. You were adopted at a particular time. it's not clear. We think you were stolen from a mother that was being held captive and, and they don't want to know. They just want to remain with a family that raised them. And equally, there's many, many cases of children who are slowly, you know, forming bonds with their biological families. The whole, the lying thing is, is enormous, you know, because a lot of the parents who adopted illegally knew what was going on. And so you now have a generation of adults who've been brought up by a, a family that's was nurturing and loving, and that you thought was your your family, who turns out to have lied consistently forever about something as important as this. I think there's also an enormous number of people who just didn't who just didn't know who just adopted a child. You know, if you know if you know people who adopt, obviously there might be a terrible history in the biological background of whom you're adopting. So I think those are wounds that will be much much harder to heal and probably will carry on, you know, forever one way or another. It was said in Europe after this the world war that that nothing can truly uh, start to shift and there's no revisionism possible until there's a generation that's old enough to say to their parents (laughs) what were you doing during the war? And here we have two generations now that have said what were you doing d- during the war? And kind of the answer is what I'm doing now, which is violently, violently protesting everything I don't agree with and just shutting down any tolerance or acceptance of otherness. So possibly that will just go on and on.
1: Okay, Marcella Mora Iorako, listen, great to talk to you in the program again. And thanks so much for talking to us about an absolutely fascinating topic and part of the reason we want to talk about this today is that it's we're one week away from the World Cup returning to South America for the first time since 1978. I'm absolutely stunned by that specific example that Marcella gave of the woman who was held tortured then brought along on the party for the party after the tournament <laughs> on the streets by these military people these military men and then immediately returned tortured some more Unfortunately, was released at some point so she can actually tell her story, but there were... Can you make the point about whether this should have been boycotted by Mm. countries? The story always went around that Johan Cruyff had boycotted it because of his belief that it shouldn't be held there, but it turned out...
2: maybe I think it was his wife's belief that he shouldn't be away from home for a long time.
1: Yeah, that was one of the theories. His... His own declaration on that was, I think it was about three or four years ago, maybe a bit longer. He was talking to a Catalan radio station, and he said, what happened was my wife and family were kidnapped a number of months before the tournament. Nothing to do with the World Cup itself, but it totally changed my outlook on what mm. my priorities were and where I should be. Mm. So we decided I'm not leaving them alone. And I, you, You've alluded to some other rumours and stories. that,
2: Yeah, I mean, as well. yeah, and I think... Uh you know, the question of boycotting, it's never really up to the individual um, players, and it's always usually for bad reasons. Like, for instance, when the Soviet Union boycott or refused to play Chile in the stadium in Santiago, where, uh, you know, I mean, the reason was that uh, people had been executed in the stadium. You know, this was, the, and the Russians are saying, we're not going to play there. But the boycotts are almost never for the right reasons. That would be a, That would be a noble reason to boycott the match. But really, the Russians are saying, um, you've taken down a socialist government. Which Similar
1: was... to the USA boycott the yeah. Olympic Games in uh, in Moscow. In Moscow. Mo- Soviet Union uh, boycott the Olympic Games yeah. in LA. I mean, this, so,
2: the Soviet Union is, is, is make, taking a moral stand against the uh, Chilean government, which is a, a commendable stance, um, but at, at the same time was behaving in ways which would have led many other countries to boycott the Soviet Union. You know, it wasn't as though... Uh, what, what I'm saying is that what, it's usually showboating by the by the political leadership of the country it doesn't really have much to, oh, the, the impact on the footballers themselves is to take away their chance of. I mean as it did a generation of American athletes and Soviet athletes then in turn for the 84 Olympics I came
1: across a BBC article in researching this topic by Vladimir Hernandez in 2013 it was last year and it's funny how only in very recent years have some people been willing to talk about this and we kind of alluded that to certain extent there, with Marcella. The, this article was based on a book by Fabian Magnata. I don't have the title of it here, but uh, Magnata done a lot of research into the people who lived in the Parana Delta, which is uh, about 200 kilometres north of Buenos Aires, who had been reluctant to speak until very recently. Just the fear that always lived within them. They didn't want to reveal what they had seen, but what they had seen was a load of packages regularly, day after day after day, a lot of these packages uh, being dropped off military planes, into the water around their island. And from time to time, people would uncover and see what was in these packages. Or unfortunately, the, the contents would sometimes drop onto trees and all this kind of thing. And there were the dead bodies of the disappeared. It was absolutely horrific when you read it in such stark terms. Uh, it kind of drives home what was going on there. But uh, we'll leave that topic for the time being. And uh, it just leaves me enough time to tell you what's coming up a little bit later on. We've talked about second captains football, Camp, But on Monday... We'll be talking Ireland-Argentina in the rugby with... Shag Hogan. Sorry, who who's that?
3: Shag Hogan. Oh,
1: of course, Shane Horgan. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And we'll also have some big Second Captains-related news for you tomorrow, so keep an eye out for that one. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, facebook.com forward slash slash Second Captains as always. Do listen to all the other shows on the Irish Times on irishtimes.com forward slash Second Captains. Do you fancy Argentina for this year's World Cup again?
2: Not really. So I not fancy, Spain, not Argentina. I no, fancy... Go
1: on. You don't have to tell us who you fancy yet. I'm just wondering who you don't fancy. Well, if it's
2: not Spain and it's not Argentina.
1: Ah, uh, the Germans. No. No. Uh, I think I know who you're going to go for, Ken. I just have to correct my uh, the last address I gave. The other podcasts are on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. It's been great, great to bring you the Irish Times Second Caps podcast today, Murph. Thanks so much. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Apologise for thank butchering you, Ken, the end thank of the show. I thought you
2: rescued it nicely.
4: Well, I don't know about, about that. that. He's I'll, limping to the finish line. <laughs> I would describe. It. I'm going to limp <laughs> yeah, off it. out of the
1: studio and uh, try and fix fix these issues for later on. Take care. Thanks for listening. this. <laughs> is that? That's the second
5: time it's
2: gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those 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 boys.